You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Well, we ended our discussion of anti-realism with the claim that we've come to the end of philosophy or that we can proclaim the death of philosophy in effect. I'm one of those who thinks that philosophy is very unlikely to come to an end in spite of these kind of pronouncements and that it will continue to focus on many of the same questions it's always been considering over the years. For a time it was popular to think, along with Wittgenstein, that some philosophical problems could simply be dissolved in a way that would disappear, evaporate, if you focus the right kind of attention on them, so that you wouldn't in effect have to solve them. You would just see that they were, that even the thought that they were a problem in the first place was sort of misguided. We had, for instance, a, a book by Gilbert Ryle that was very influential called The Concept of Mind. Ryle tried to show that ordinary statements about mental events and so forth were just misguided ways of talking about behavior and that by Occam's razor we could sort of eliminate talk about mental states and altogether and we could see, we could recognize that somehow we'd been confused by our way of talking. We sometimes say, oh that was a nice thought or here's what I really want to have and then we think well, there are things that like wants and desires and the like Whereas Ryle thinks we could just skip over all of that if we just looked at language in a certain way or translated that into another kind of language. So the idea was that we make all kinds of category mistakes in ordinary life and that philosophers are going to help us out by showing us that there really aren't these things that we normally, that our language commits us to. Now there may be such a thing as, as category mistakes in philosophy, but when there are category mistakes, most of us recognize them immediately. People making category mistakes tend to be a little bit younger. That is, they haven't fully grasped the language yet. They don't understand how we're using it and so forth. When I was younger, we lived not far from a town that had a paper mill in it. And so once in a while you get this horrible stench in the atmosphere. And uh, I'd say, what is that? And people would say, oh, that's camas. Well, I thought camas was to be some kind of a plant or something. It turns out it was a town, and the town itself didn't stink. It was the paper mill. But for me, it was associated with a certain kind of stuff or plant or whatever. It turned out to, I was applying the term the wrong way. In a similar kind of way, somebody recently gave me a little towelette, and the towelette says, wash away your sins towelette. It's an antibacterial formula that kills sin on contact. Uh, write your wrongs with a wipe. Here are the directions. Remove moist towelette. Devoutly wipe away wrongdoing. Spot check for stubborn guilt. Wipe again as needed. Discard sins in waste receptacle. Go forth purified and moisturized. Now that's a category mistake, and we all recognize it to be one. We're not, nobody's fooled by that. We don't need a philosopher to tell us that you can't wash away your sins with a moist towelette. So along with that kind of tradition in philosophy or that sort of recent approach in philosophy, there's a, I think, a more hopeful direction that's been um, initiated, I think, by Roderick Chisholm, who taught for many years at Brown University and uh, taken up by others such as Alvin Plantinga. Uh, it's a kind of fresh start, you might say, with respect to realism. Chisholm was convinced by uh, the philosopher Franz Brentano, not on everything, but on this he was convinced, that to think is to think about something that thought is directional, it's directed at 
something. There's a, something we're, we're thinking about, a proposition or a, or a concept. To believe is to believe that a certain claim is true and so forth. And Chisholm starts from a very strong distinction between, again, a priori claims or analytic claims which are certain and empirical claims which are going to have varying levels of certainty. Chisholm famously liked to make very careful definitions and to, to be very precise about the meaning. And it's like Austin in that way. Careful definitions of each kind of level of certainty we might have about our experience, what we experience, and each one is compared and connected with those that are just below and just above it. He resists the move to sense data, for instance, in describing our experience of the external world. Instead, he opts for what's, what came to be called an adverbial theory of perception. Um, so you don't say, I see a red sense datum. You say, I am appeared to redly. I'm appeared to redly. Or I'm appeared to brownly, or I'm appeared to uh, circularly, or whatever it is. It's awkward. Uh, way of phrasing things, so it's not something that's going to catch on in ordinary language, of course. But I think the point was to go back to something that Thomas Reed had also suggested, that when the mind perceives, the mind is, is an activity of the mind of a certain kind. It's a kind of activity of the mind. It is not the fact that the mind's perceiving some object other than the chair. It's just the way in which the mind perceives the chair is by a way of being appeared too readily and so forth. So the, the red appearance isn't something separate from the chair and the mind and so forth. There's no third thing here. Furthermore, Chisholm argued that thought is prior to language. And in this sense, he was, um, uh, he was disagreeing with the later Wittgenstein and with Wilfred Sellers, who had argued that uh, we can't have any thoughts until we learn a language. Now, the problem has been in modern philosophy, at least since Descartes, uh, how we're going to move outside of our mind how to get from what's appearing to our minds to the external world, reality itself. And uh, Chisholm is a realist here, so he thinks there is a way the world is. He suggests a kind of empirical realism, empirical access to the world, combined with a, a coherence criterion. So as long as a belief matches in a way, coheres with earlier and later experiences and beliefs that are already justified, then he says we can be justified in accepting it as true. In their assessment and treatment of Chisholm's philosophical contributions, Richard Foley and Dean Zimmerman co-author an essay on Chisholm, and they describe what Chisholm takes to be some of the principal sources of empirical justification, namely self-presentation, being appeared to readily, what's obviously presented to the self, memory, belief coupled with a lack of negative coherence. So if I believe something and I don't, it doesn't fit badly with the other stuff I believe, then I'm justified in accepting it. And finally, a kind of more positive coherence among propositions with some antecedent positive epistemic status. So if the things that I remember about this morning fit with one another in a kind of coherent and congruent way, then I can go ahead and accept them. If something I seem to remember doesn't fit with the, the other things I remember, then maybe I should withhold my belief for now until I see what I need to adjust and so forth. So there's a kind of coherence element there, but ultimately we will get our beliefs, our initial beliefs for Chisholm from perception, memory, and so on. Now Chisholm wrote an essay called, early on really in his career, called The Problem of the Criterion. And there he's considering various strategies for trying to overcome skepticism, to show that we could have confidence in our 
ordinary criteria for knowing, that we can have confidence that our sensations, our sense perceptions are pretty accurate about what's out there, that our memory is reliable and so forth. Unfortunately, he says, when we argue for a set of criteria, we seem to be already presupposing some kind of criteria. Right? We can't just we say, well, we're going to try to have a way of sorting out the good beliefs from the bad ones. But how are we going to do that until we know which procedure to use? And I can't pick a procedure right, until I know this is a procedure that seems to sort the good ones from the bad ones properly. So it looks like I already know which ones are good and bad. So I can see this is the right procedure to use. Right? It's as though you're trying to sort out apples, right? the, the good ones from the uh, rotten ones. How do I know the machine's sorting them correctly unless I already know some other way what the good ones and the bad ones are and so forth. So it's a kind of chicken and egg problem. Chisholm himself decides that the sorting process might be best approached along the lines of originally suggested by Aristotle and picked up by Thomas Reed and G.E. Moore and so forth. Uh, beginning from particular claims that we know, you just start with the things we know, some of the things we know, then you see which theory of knowing includes them as it should, incorporates them. If, if your theory says, you know, in other words, you say, well, I know there's a chair in the room. If you come up with a theory of, of knowledge that says, you don't really know that there's a chair in the room, maybe you should reject the theory, right? That is, you should start with some things and, and hang on to those, right? You should expect the criterion to capture the things that you already know for the most part. I mean, here and there, of course, you might revise and say, well, maybe I didn't really know that. That's true. So you, even common sense might be convinced about that. But otherwise, you shouldn't be too quick, in other words, to abandon common sense. Now, Chisholm ends this essay on the problem of the criterion by admitting that this begs the question against the skeptic, right? Because you start with, well, here's some things I know, and the skeptic's going to say, how do you know that you know them? But he says, but skepticism begs the question against realism. One may object, says Chisholm, doesn't this mean then that the skeptic is right after all? I would answer, not at all. His view is only one of the three possibilities for, for picking a criterion, right? And in itself has no more to recommend it than the others do. And in favor of our approach, there is the fact that we do know many things after all. Right? In favor of our view, he says, is the fact that we do know many things. The fact that we do. Well, of course, the skeptic is going to say that's not a fact, or how can you rely on that fact? How can you call it a fact? if you don't have some way of proving that it's a fact and so forth. But, you know, you have to start somewhere, as Chisholm says, and it's hard to imagine how you're going to be able to start with skepticism, or if you start there, you won't go anywhere. I think his point here is very similar to one made by, by many other philosophers, by Thomas Reed and others, that unless we begin with the belief that we know a few things, we're unlikely to end with a belief that we know anything at all. Descartes' uh, methodic doubt, right, trying to eliminate everything you've ever known, is probably a poor way to begin the philosophical project. As against Quine then and the general skepticism of our age, Chisholm asks, why not assume in the seminar room the same things we take ourselves to know in everyday life? Why, when we do philosophy, should we appeal to nothing but what we find in our physics and chemistry textbooks? Uh, it's a good question. Right? Why restrict ourselves to that? Why shouldn't we just start with the things we know before we ever learned physics, chemistry, or took a philosophy course. So that is one effort, and uh, Chisholm himself, although he didn't take on that many uh, of the deeper metaphysical questions, did write pretty extensively on some topics, and especially on, uh, interestingly enough, the topic of free will. 
uh, developing a, a theory of agent causation, according to which the cause of a free act is just the agent herself or himself, not prior antecedent physical events. So Chisholm himself, I think, defended many of the claims of common sense uh, very ably and proposed a, a kind of way of beginning in philosophy that was, in a way, a kind of bold realism, a kind of in-your-face, you know, we're going to start here. If you think you can do better, starting with skepticism or whatever, have at it. Now, along similar lines, I think, we could turn to Alvin Plantinga's development of a view he calls weak foundationalism. I'll say something about the difference between weak and strong foundationalism in a minute, but on Plantinga's view, what he wants to focus on is what, which beliefs are going to be warranted, right? He thinks warrant is the key notion here. It's supposed to be, he wants to say, warrant is something like positive epistemic status or the factor which, when added to true belief, makes it into knowledge. Right? Remember, clear back in uh, Plato, we had the account of knowledge as justified true belief. That turns out to be not fully adequate for various reasons. Planning, anyway, wants to replace justification here with, as a term with warrant, and so it's going to be warranted true beliefs that count as knowledge. Now, whether they're true or not, we're going to set aside for now, because we probably aren't going to be able to determine what's warranted until we, what's true, I mean, until we know what's warranted. And Plantinga has written a very impressive trilogy on the nature of warrant, right? The, f the first volume in which was called Warrant, the Current Debate. Then the second volume is Warrant and Proper Function, his own account of warrant. And then he turns in the third volume, just came out in 2000, turns to the question of warranted Christian belief, applying his theory of warrant to religious faith. Um, and the third volume opens with this sentence. Our interest in this book is the de jure question, is it rational, reasonable, justifiable, warranted to accept Christian belief? Is Christian belief warranted? Now, Plantinga's theory of warrant endorses those beliefs we form when our rational faculties are functioning properly in the environment in which they are intended to function. Thus, just as in Chisholm's theory, some beliefs can receive warrant simply from the fact that we believe them. Our beliefs, you might say, are innocent until proven guilty. When we have no reason to think that our faculties are distorted in some way, we haven't been drinking and so forth, we don't have any reason to think that we're in some kind of bizarre circumstances, that we've been captured, say, by sophisticated but sadistic aliens who have put our brains into a vat and are keeping it uh, alive that way. If we don't have any reason to think that, then our beliefs have warrant. The conclusion of Plantinga's book is that no objections to Christian belief seriously undermine the claim that Christian beliefs are warranted, as, as long as Plantinga's model of warrant, and of course the Christian beliefs themselves, are in fact true. He considers many, many different kinds of objections to uh, the rationality of Christian belief and concludes that none of them are persuasive. So in the final paragraph of the book, Plantinga asks this question, but is it true? Is Christianity true? This is the really important question, he says, and here we pass beyond the competence of philosophy, whose main competence in this area is to clear away certain objections, impedances, and obstacles to Christian belief. Speaking for myself, and of course not in the name of philosophy, I can only say that it does indeed seem to me to be true, and to be the maximally important truth. That's the conclusion of warranted Christian belief. And this brings us to a definition of weak foundationalism. According to weak foundationalism, our beliefs uh, are warranted 
built up in various ways from foundational or basic beliefs. One has some basic beliefs that in the sense that they're not based on other beliefs. Perhaps they're grounded in perception or in memory or some other source or some other rational faculty. Um, and our other beliefs receive warrant from these beliefs by, by various process of, processes of inference. So there are ways of uh, justifying non-basic beliefs by way of appealing back to the basic beliefs. Not always in a kind of deductive way, obviously. In the case of empirical claims, the basic beliefs might lend support to, or inductively in some way, lend support to non-basic beliefs about the world. And so the basic beliefs are the kind of foundations of knowledge, in that sense it is a form of foundationalism. But which beliefs are going to be in the basic category? Which beliefs are properly thought to be basic? Strong foundationalism has sort of strict requirements here on which beliefs can go into the foundational beliefs, which ones can be declared properly basic. A belief might be basic for you in that you just believe it and you don't base it on other beliefs, but it might not be very reasonable for you to do that. According to strong foundationalism, um, the, the kind of things that could go into the basic category are limited. For some philosophers, especially in the modern period, uh, like Descartes and Locke and so on, it's going to be the be only beliefs that could go in were those that were either self-evident or uh, incorrigible. You couldn't be wrong about them. And therefore, they would be beliefs about sense data, about what's the immediate objects of our mental awareness and so forth, and that was it. And we found, I think, the history of philosophy has kind of shown us that if you start there, you're not going to get back outside. You're not going to be able to show the existence of external objects outside the mind. Uh, you'll have no good way of arguing for those. Um, so starting within the mind, you, you tend to stay within the mind. All right, so other versions of uh, foundationalism, even strong foundationalism, are a little more generous about what could be put into the basic belief category. Plantinga himself is pretty, pretty open on this. All right, he says common sense beliefs can go in there, but um, he also rejects what he calls the Aquinas-Calvin model of warrant, um, which is focused maybe more on Calvin than Aquinas. Um, that is, he, he revises it in various ways. Um, Plantinga thinks that the beliefs that are properly basic are whatever beliefs we do have, and we don't base them on other beliefs. So they're basic for us, in other words, and um, as long as we have these beliefs and we have them and our faculties are functioning properly in the environment in which they're intended to function and so forth, they can count. They're properly basic. They're not just basic for us. They're properly basic, and we can go ahead and build other beliefs on them. Uh, with strong foundationalism, you have a much stronger claim to universality with respect to the properly basic beliefs. The idea would be not just that maybe it's okay for me to take this belief as a starting point, but that every human being or every normally functioning adult human being is going to take these to be their starting points. These are things that, as Chisholm put, puts it, these are things we know. We, not just I know, we know. For Aristotle, the basic beliefs are going to be the things that are self-evident, of course, and then what he called evident to the senses. He's, a, broadly speaking, an empiricist. Aristotle thinks our knowledge of the world comes through our five senses initially. And he thinks this criterion is basically descriptive of the way we do come to know things. We rely on our senses. Of course, we're not going to begin then with certitudes. Why? Because things that are evident to the senses could turn out to be false. And they could turn out to be false either because of, of sort of very ordinary situations where 
the light wasn't very good or the sun was in our eyes or whatever it is that have interfered or sometimes we have to, uh, they're defeasible because of uh, maybe some very fantastic example. Maybe there's an evil demon that's messing with our mind. Maybe there are these aliens that have captured us and so forth. But Aristotle thinks it's a place we have to begin. Right? We have to begin from what we know and these are the things we, we all can start with. Plantinga himself once offered um, some very fascinating arguments for the existence of God. In an essay called Two Dozen or So Good Theistic Arguments. Interestingly, he never published this essay, but he denies that any of these arguments could be seen as demonstrating the existence of God. It's in part because Plantinga accepts the reliability of our mental faculties on the grounds that these faculties are created in us by God. And one presupposes the reliability of our faculties in putting forward any arguments at all. That is, like Reed and, uh, not G.E. Moore, but like Reed, uh, Plantinga's confidence in common sense derives in part from the background of his theism, right, his belief in God. It's because God exists, God has made us, our reasoning faculties, and the world outside of our minds that we can rely upon our rational faculties. And Plantinga thinks that if you, that because you need theism in, in that sense in order to trust your rational faculties, and you can't prove theism without already trusting your rational faculties, that there's no way of, of simply starting from what we know, as it were, to defend things like the existence of God. So for him, the existence of God is a basic belief. It's partly phenomenological as well. Plantinga thinks that for believers, most believers, their belief in God is basic for them. He concludes that finding evidential common ground then between believers and unbelievers from which one could launch arguments for the existence of God is going to be next to impossible. It's not going to be easy. Natural theology in the traditional Thomistic sense isn't going to be doable. Believers and unbelievers will not be able to find common ground because they won't have the same uh, reason for confidence in their faculties. He also thinks that project is wrong-headed because Calvin's view, at least, was that belief in God is basic or should be basic, maybe, for Christian believers. Now, what would um, St. Thomas Aquinas say here? Uh, for the real answer to that, you have to ask Professor Ralph McInerney. Uh, but I'll hazard a guess, even though I'm hardly more than a peeping Thomist myself. St. Thomas had a soft spot for Aristotle's argument against the skeptics of his own day. If you don't trust reason, how can you take seriously any claims you make? Your best policy would be to remain silent. If you're going to put forward a claim, presumably you're, you're putting forward a claim you want to say is true, but if you don't trust reason, how can you make any claim at all? Now, if all skeptics were to follow that advice, the only ones still taking part in the conversation would be those who believe that reason can be trusted, at least for now, and who believe there are some things we do know. Perhaps we don't all know, or we don't all believe even, that there is a God, but we know that things move, things come into being and pass away. Maybe arguments beginning from these humble truths won't convince everyone who encounters them that there is a first cause of the universe. But there are countless things we know that add support to this and other important beliefs, religious and metaphysical. Where can we find these things? Go to Thomas. His words are not always the last word in a great philosophical conversation, but you won't find a better place to begin. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.